Um, I mean, the other thing I haven't quite said is wait, I was wait, going wait, to wait, the, wait. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Tell everybody what that rave culture thing meant because I remember that ruling. There was a reason why they changed mm. the regulation. What was that for? That, yeah, that well, reg- it was, I mean, it was what it was really for is the government. John Major was the successor to Margaret Thatcher. I mean, we now look back on John Major and we think he was a benign, you know, fairly liberal human being because Thatcher was radical and, and a, had a. She ruled with was, a was, was divisive and individualistic. And and there was there was racist and homophobic legislation passed by that government. Um, it was there was a it was a, it was an economic war and there was a cultural war. John Major was much less divisive. He was a very grey figure. He he didn't have a strong personality. He didn't have the strength, the vision of Margaret Thatcher. People were sort of relieved, but also people were kind of fed up that the Conservatives were still in power. So in order to try and popularise his his administration, which wasn't that. A, losing lose ground opinion polls um he passed this thing called the criminal justice act that tried to make just tried to kind of group together a bunch of marginal groups in society and target them uh, in order to kind of show how he was a strong leader and he was going to put put in place these kind of these you know if you like rebellious countercultural groups so it included hunt saboteurs roads protesters um, I think uh, I can't remember some maybe some activist groups and also ravers. Right. Uh, it was a hodge. It was a hodgepodge of a bill trying to trying to you know pick on these outcast groups in society. That's exactly. Uh, and there was and and it was you know there was this been a very banal definition of rave culture about you know that was organised about it being music that that foregrounded repetitive beats um, as if that's. A problem, even 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 if there are, um, you know, there's not repetition and variation are one of the kind of you know most extraordinary things in all music, not just in rave music. So um, anyway, it was passed, and it was quite, um, you know, for a few years, definitely uh, there was there was a fairly significant um, reduction in the in in rave culture, and a lot of the energy moved back into the clubs. But one of the reasons why rave had had, had exploded in the first place was because of the licensing restrictions on 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 nightclubs right. they were all it was like the old new york laws i mean i don't i can't quite remember when they changed in new york city i hadn't got that far in my history but in the 1970s they generally had to close at 3 30 in the morning i think as far as i can remember and it was sim- it was similar uh, in the uk and of course if you're going out and you're you're starting a dance at 11 o'clock or midnight then that's just not long enough and if someone has taken the substance whether it's ecstasy or who knows what um, they don't want. They don't want to kind of. They want it to carry on. So raves, because they were in these in this kind of semi legally grey space, were able to carry on until the early hours. It's exactly the same as someone like David uh, Mancuso. Well, that's why he created members. Yeah, you know, he he wanted to avoid. I mean, he had many reasons for wanting to put on a party in his home, uh, but one of the most important was the fact that he didn't want New York's cabaret licensing laws to tell him when he was going to stop the party. And he didn't want them telling him that he had to sell alcohol because he wasn't interested in selling. He wasn't interested in making money that way. And he didn't think that alcohol helped the part, the dance floor. He thought it was a detriment to the dance floor. So anyway, rave had a, some, there was something about the freedom of, of rave that, you know, I, I loved and, uh, um, you know, that resonated with me and that I would sort of rediscover, I suppose, when I would eventually meet David. But the one thing I wanted to briefly mention is that I was going to the gardening club. It was like a, 
it was like a lifeline for me, actually. In this moment of, of some sense of desolation and isolation, it was on that dance floor that I found, I felt, I, I felt that things were actually okay. Because for a lot of the rest of the time in my life, at that period, I didn't feel they were okay. But on the dance floor, with this, with these de- this collective of DJs playing this house music that largely came from New York, surrounded by people who were dancing and were generally smiling and being friendly, I felt everything was okay with the world. I would then go back, you know, many hours later, and things would seem a bit less okay. So, uh, but something was happening on that dance floor that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, this was, this was, you know, the Hacienda was a one-off experience and it was this extraordinary and there was an immediate connection, but this was like, oh, this is a, this pr- is providing me with a sense of community. And if you like spirituality, um, or a sense of meaning and a place in the world that is profound, uh, and, it wasn't that long after I was started to dance at the at the gardening club that uh, one of the, a guest a guest DJ uh, came in to do a two hour set. I guess this guest DJ might have played a few nights that that night in London, and he was kind of doing a little tour. And it was Louis Baker, and I still remember a whole bunch of records um, that uh, Louis played that night. South Street Player, do you believe? Um, so, uh, she keep, keeps changing her mind, or oh, she keeps changing her mind. South Street Player. And the believers, Roy Ayers, do you do you believe in me? And uh, I was like, wow, you know, it was just like I, I, I remember being on that floor and just like crying basically at the sheer beauty and of of the of the music, the atmosphere. Um, and you know, I was already buying quite a lot of Louis records, you know, deep inside uh, by hard drive. The dub version was just like you know. It was a big record in that part. That was very much the vibe of that party. It was warm, it was dubby, it was groovy. Uh, it felt very alternative, but also it, was, it wasn't like on its own trip. It was like the music was constantly kind of connecting with people. So I wanted to, you know, I haven't, I've kind of maybe said this, I don't know if I've, I've said this in a very convincing way, but a big part of me going to want to live in New York was wanting to be able to go and dance to Louis's selections at the Sound Factory Bar every Wednesday night because that's where he was playing at the time. And this was my idea: do a doctorate English English literature, reconnect through literature with you know my losses, but also my dad who had become an English teacher, and my mum also loved literature, um, and go dancing every night. The sound. Um, Willie Ninja was was working the door at that particular point. Barbara Tucker was you know was the co-host. Um, uh, musicians, you know, such as Tito Puente, were performing regularly at the Sound Factory Bar. It was it was nuts. Um, I do remember some some you know some some people weren't that happy with the new digital sound system that had been recently installed in in the party. Um, but you know, I just thought it was it was I thought it was extraordinary actually, and uh, it was a total privilege to be able to go there. So that was so I moved to New York in 1994. Okay, and uh, in the autumn of 1994, and um, just to sort of finish this, you know, the musical influences bit of the question. Sorry, this is a long. No, you long have to explain. No, you have to explain. You have to explain. Um, I had a I had a very kindly professor, uh, a young professor at the time. We've all aged a bit since then, of course. A guy called Rob Nixon, who was also similarly minded. He was he'd done his research, he was writing good books, but he was somehow he was always kind of um, looking out. And he was doing journalism and all sorts of things that was kind of engaging in a, with a kind of wider general public, if you want to call it that. And he turned to me and he said, "Why don't you write a quick book 
in inverted commas. This is, you know, as a direct quote. Why don't you write a quick book about the history of how of of rave culture? or house music culture and rave culture, because it was a big story. It had just been criminalized in the UK. And I thought, great, I'm going to do that. And um, and I did, wrote, I put together a proposal. If I re-looked, re-read that proposal now, it would be kind of slightly laughable uh, in terms of what I ended up doing. Um, it was, yeah, I've, I've, things, things quickly moved on in terms of the way that I wanted to do writing. But that was, the, that was the key moment, someone saying, why don't you do a quick book about this? And I wrote a proposal. Uh, it's an incredible, uh, the place I most wanted to publish was Duke University Press. It's a university press, so, you know, university books, press books don't always circulate very easily. Um, you know, they don't get reviewed in, in the mainstream newspapers, the New York Times, wherever. Um, but this editor had an incredible reputation and Duke University produced beautiful, beautiful books that you just wanted to hold. And they were very nicely edit, produced, you know, the graphics, everything that the paper was printed on. And that was where I did want to, I really wanted to publish. And the editor, it turned out, who's a, who's a kind of a Renaissance man figure, a guy called Ken Whisaker, who just has extraordinary cultural and political knowledge about, you know, you name it. He, he, he kind of covers it. And uh, he's a truly extraordinary editor. And he wanted to, as it happens, because he's a super cool dude, he, uh, he, wanted, he already wanted to publish a book about house music. Um, and he was uh, actually a DJ, a uh, hip-hop DJ in Chicago, uh, who also was into house music in the mid-1980s. Um, where I think he might have been doing his doctorate. So he was very clued into the music. And he had actually rejected a book that had come out, I think, in 1999 by Sarah Thornton called Club Cultures, which is one of the early books about club clubbing. But that book was a very kind of analytical, um, quite theoretical book. It was bringing theories of a French philosopher called Pierre Bourdieu. And, and it was like, if you were into the culture and you read this book, you think, what the hell is going on here? This book is not, in, and it was like, it was it was emotionally removed. It didn't engage with the culture on its own terms. It didn't speak to people involved in the scene. It was quite sort of sniffy, superior. Um, and he had been offered that book and had actually rejected it, interestingly. But oh, he wow. knew he wanted a book about dance music. And I sent him my proposal. My proposal, I would say, was it was a good proposal, but it was trying to be quite like, manifesto-like, saying that rave culture could transform the world in all these ways and it would do this, you know, there was elements of what we call cultural theory in there. And it was interesting because, um, you know, he basically, Ken's response was say, I want this book, but, you know, I, I think the really important thing for this book is, you know, you don't go down, don't go down the route of Sarah, what Sarah Thornton has done. It's, you know, what people want, you know, it's got to be about the culture. Um, and well, by the time I'd got this response from Ken, I had already, and the, what are called peer-reviewed, the readers, the blind, the peer-reviewed readers who will say whether they think the book should be commissioned or not. That's the university press uh, research process. Um, I had started to conduct, in, to conduct research for this book. Well, that's, that's what I want to know. How, who, who helps you gain this research? And, and you're living in New York. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was already going to Dance Tracks, uh, this store uh, on is it East 3rd Street run by Stephen Prescott and Joe Closell, of course. And I was going there every Friday night. And it was like, it was a scene down there, really. I think Friday night was the night the imports came in, maybe. So that's that right. Was the night that everyone, it was quite funny because I'd come from Europe, London, because I was so into New York music, 
uh, basically, and, and Chicago, but I was into the US, but it's kind of large. I was mainly into the New York stuff, to be fair, by that particular moment. Um, but in New York, everyone's like waiting for the imports to come in from from Europe and London. It's all, you know, we romanticize the other sometimes, don't we, in these sure. situations. So that was kind of that was kind of music. But anyway, I was I was going down there and I was I was getting to know, you know, lots of people and I was going to I was still dancing, you know. I think at some point uh Sound Factory Bar closed down and Body and Soul started. So everything was in the air. Um, I was getting to know, I was getting to know, whoops, I was getting to know Joe, I was getting, becoming friendly with Stefan and, um, and yeah, I was just sort of, I was also, the other thing is I had come from journalism, so I was quite used to knowing, knowing about how to approach people with an idea and persuade them to talk to me because that's what I've been basically, I've been to journalism school and I've been trained to do this. Um, and I was quite bold, um, you know, as a, as a, as a young man, I didn't, didn't have too many fears. Um, so I was approaching people, um, very, very early on, cause I was supposed to be writing a history of house music and I was into house music and I will confess, I've never been ashamed to confess. I was not interested in writing about disco to me, as I've already said, disco was kind of the music that I was listening to as a 10 year old on the radio. Uh, and I identified it with a bunch of well-known acts, some of whom are very credible, but, you know, whether it's Donna Summer or the Bee Gees or Chic, you know, we might want to say, well, we like some Donna Summer and we think Chic's great and we're not so sure about the Bee Gees. I don't know, everyone will have their own take, but but I wasn't sure I wanted to go there. Um, and at times, I even remember Stefan in particular, but also Joe, were trying to sell me classic, disco classics. My ears, I've got quite large ears, that they, they had turned, they, they were electronic. I, I was addicted to house music, um, and I couldn't hear much else. When New York and Soul album came out in 1997, it was a bit of a shock to my system. This was when Louis and Kenny basically decided to re-record uh, a bunch of classics uh, from, you know, primarily the 1970s, and to bring, you know, figures like Jocelyn Brown and a whole bunch of, you know, Vince Montana and others to to record them, and it was all live. Uh, Jocelyn Brown's uh, It's Alright, I Feel It was the big kind of hit, the big body and soul hit from the album. It was a great record, but, you know, at, it was that was a turning point for me, actually. That was like about the beginning of a tuning to, like, live instrumentation. And, of course, spiritual life was prolific at this point. And also Louis and Kenny before then, they had already been bringing instrumentalists into house music. But I hadn't quite got to the point where I didn't want to have, I wanted to have a live drums instead of, to me, the electronic drums were the things that propel, propelled everything in a sure. way that couldn't be, re my ears, I have to say, my ears have since changed. Oh, that's yeah, what that's I, what happens. That's what happens. You get yeah. cultivated and then you start to see the response of these records being played and exactly. it becomes... Like, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I need to exactly, explore exactly. this a bit more. You start to think, I need, maybe exactly. I need to explore my mind a little more, open up. Exactly. I'm still waiting to find out how. Yeah, yeah. So let me just say that. So I was just going to, just like, slowly again. So I was supposed to be writing about house music, and Stefan knew this. Um, and Stefan said, Well, you know, I know you're doing this, but why don't you speak to this guy, David Mancuso? He was around sometime at the beginning. I don't, you know, I don't know. To, oh, David. Hi, David. That's one of my favorite David photos. It was taken, yeah. I think, in 1975 by Peter Hujar, who was a very significant uh, and 
quite important, yeah, influential um, uh, gay photographer who I believe died uh, from AIDS. Um, so that Peter took this this photo, uh, which is a, a how really does he, how did they get you to Mancuso? I want to give this. Just well, Stefan knew David. I think, I think David was going. David didn't really go into record stores at this. Ever. I mean, I think as a younger man he did. Uh, but he had stopped going into record stores. You know, he, for, as, as everyone now knows, uh, but not that many people knew for a while, he, he was running the New York Record Pool. He was getting more records coming to him through the Record Pool than he could listen to. This was the case with all DJs at one point. The, the, the kind of the market, if you want to call it that, did become a bit flooded in the latter part of the 1970s. Um, disco did become kind of, you know, did become highly commercialized and... And some DJs, you know, yeah, what fantastic photo. I took um, photos from so his Yeah, his yeah so David co-founded the round. I mean, this was, anyway, we'll, we may come back to some of this stuff. But, um, yeah, um, they was, um, what was I, yeah, anyway, the, Stefan said, why don't you speak with, with David? He was around sometime at the beginning. Um, I didn't really want to go there. But I was also a reasonably polite young man, and I was an I was quite inquisitive as well, um, and I trusted Stefan actually, and I was also I really wanted to do, explore things, and um, and I had a sense that I might need a bit of a backdrop story, if you like, to house music. But I didn't know I have to say I didn't know much about David, and I tried to do some research, and this was by the way this was like the spring of 1997, so none of these, not even the Sarah Thornton book, had come out. Um, last night, a DJ didn't come out for a few years. Um, there wasn't much written about, a few books had started to come out about the kind of rave scene, uh, in the UK. And, uh, I think one of them maybe gave a fleeting reference, like a one sentence reference to David before going on to give a parrot, write a paragraph about the paradise garage. Uh, before then going into the story of the warehouse and then really carrying on the story in the UK. A lot of these early UK histories were really all about the UK, but there was a page or two about the United States. Um, so it was very hard to find much out about David. I spoke to, there was another guy who I, I prefer not to name because it's, you know, I don't want to kind of try and undermine what, what he said, but he was finishing a doctorate in house music, actually, at, at Columbia University. And he told me, don't bother uh interviewing david mancuso it would be a waste it would basically be a bit of a waste of time his parties are not really running anymore he doesn't mix records he doesn't particularly like house music uh his sound system is antiquated uh uses like these this kind high-end stereo that you never find in clubs anymore um and you know it's not really relevant to house music culture we are of course you know on a program that is is all about kind of you know house so here we are where this is is david mancuso relevant to us or not and you know my what it was interesting so i was i was warned not to waste my time but i went to meet david um anyway and it was just it was another one of these transformative experiences i mean immediately i liked the guy i was drawn to him you know he he was uh well, he came across as a go on go on this question just you hearing all the negatives no sound this and this and this must yeah, yeah. you as the journalist with your hat on go now i must have to meet this <laughs> think about that I was, I, in, I was intrigued but i was also a bit i was a little bit worried you know because i think by this point i'd already arranged to meet david basically i think if i hadn't already arranged to meet david i would have probably been influenced by this guy 
um, I'm, if I'm to be honest, I might not have gone ahead with that interview, but I had gone ahead and contacted David and he had said, yes, let's meet. And I'm just, I'm one of these people, if you kind of make a plan, if I make an arrangement, it kills me to break that arrangement. I just feel, I feel terrible. Um, I just don't like, I don't like it. I just don't like it. Um, so I went, I basically went ahead with, I went ahead with it. I, I was in, I was interested with meeting someone who would have perspective. That's for sure. That would have, you know, even if I'm told this guy's not really relevant and also it's about trusting Stefan as well and trusting the guy, you know, and Joe and the guy, the, the dance tracks community, if you like, you know, that these were, I mean, they, they were not going to suggest I speak to him for nothing. He had clearly been around, but what was, what I suppose I'm partly trying to say is that he had sort of disappeared a bit from history. His party had taken some, he'd had some unfortunate decisions, the decision to move from Prince street to third street, um, which took place in, in basically in the second half of 1984 did not work out as David had hoped. Uh, he thought he was moving into the place that would become a permanent home for the loft. Uh, Alphabet city had been promised regeneration money by Jimmy Carter David went and moved there on the basis that it could be regenerated in the way that Soho had come from being an abandoned kind of part of downtown New York, this flourishing uh, part of New York. David liked Soho, but he didn't like the fact there was no community in Soho, and he didn't really think the artists were very communally minded. Uh, they tried to stop him from opening on Prince Street, apart from anything else. Um, and he thought that a bunch of them were primarily kind of, you know, more driven by real estate investment than by art. And he wanted to get back to the community vibes of the East Village. That was what he considered to be home. But Ronald Reagan got elected in November 1980. He took office in, you know, uh, early in 1981. And his first budgets started to cut the money that had been promised for regeneration. And by the time David moved there in 1984, the money had been whipped away from, that was promised had been taken away from the area. It was a war zone. It was a drug war zone. And David lost two thirds of his crowd overnight. Uh, yeah. Many of the women just didn't want to go to that part of town. They felt it was too dangerous. David then got caught up in other things, that, and including, you know, um, uh, a a a business relationship with a lawyer who ended up kind of uh, taking his building away from him. Um, and it was a downward spiral for David in in some respects between 1984 and 1987 when I met him. Uh, he was, uh, it was in some, in some ways, it was uh, the lowest ebb he had ever been with his parties, you could say. But he was also looking to get going again. Uh, he had just opened a space on Avenue B. It didn't work out. Um, but, you know, he was all, you know, the thing about David is that he's got this, there is, a, there, you know, his, his favorite book, his, his favorite book was by, written by a guy called John Diamond called The Life Energy of Music. David is very interested in the way that, you know, music gives you a life energy what, and what kind of music gives you a life energy. Um, and there's a life energy in David. He's a strong, he was a strong, resilient person with a, just an extraordinary spirit. And I think that a lot of people who came into contact with him, although, you know, he had fallings out and there were arguments and he didn't, you know, he probably, he may have made some decisions uh, during this period that he would regret. Um, but he had a he had the, a spirit and a will and a, a an inner core of, of a vision about what he wanted to achieve that never really he he never abandoned that even at his lowest ebb he he was holding on to certain ways that he wanted the party to be. I had people coming up to him. I mean, we're jumping a bit ahead here, but um, 
I'll finish this story and then try and rewind. But people were coming up to me. Uh, I'll, again, I won't name names. Sort of saying, "Look, I, I think that I want to help David, and if if I can do this with him, and if he comes in and we do this kind of deal, and this is how it will work, and this will be the system, and this will be the space, and this will be how we cut the the, the deal." And David was always like, "No, no, no." He would rather not do something that he considered in his terms to be a compromise than to do it and start to get, a, let's say, a decent income again. Uh, because he was absolutely focused on, on you know, he had a, a real inner belief in what a certain type of party set up in a certain type of way could produce in terms of energy and spirit and community and, um you know, a revitalization in your in your life. So, but anyway, going back to when I first met David, you know, he's he was he. I, I think I just in the intro to Love Saves the Day, I might describe him as a cross between a teddy bear and a biblical prophet. Um, it, it, that was something what he was like. You know, he's quite a big guy. Kind of, you know, when he was younger, he looked like Jesus. Uh, now, I guess he looked like a kind of rather aging and bedraggled Jesus who didn't have a particularly good diet. But there was still this kind of, you know, it, it was really interesting. Uh, he, he really wanted to engage. Uh, he was passionate. He wanted, and he wanted his story to be told. Uh, it became clear very quickly. And I, it was interesting. We sat down for three hours, and I did not really know. I couldn't follow much of the story he was telling. Well, wow. I, I hadn't grown up in New York. I hadn't been going out dancing in New York. So clearly, people have been going to the loft for years, or the, you know, the garage. They would have heard. Of, they would know more about David and the loft than I would. But this, no one had written this stuff up at this point, and David had fallen out of history. Um, he had only been interviewed at that point maybe three times. It's quite extraordinary um, that that was the case. And and it, I really had a sense that I had a sense he liked me, um, that we got on quite well. And I would later find out that he some of his he had a couple of one friend in particular when he was younger was a, a mentor figure was a writer. He liked writers for some reason, um, and he uh, he you know he related to me as I was I was a writer even though this was going to be my first book. Um, but I had done some other writing, I suppose. But he wanted to tell his story, and we sat down for three hours, and he came up with all the. There's all this, like, Michael Capello and Steve DeQuisto and um, Francis Grasso and the New York City record pool and the 10th floor and the gallery. And these were not references that I um, understood or was familiar with. And I had come from journalism, and so this kind of light bulb kind of started to flash, you know, it was positioned just here behind my head, behind my right ear. And that light bulb, that imaginary light bulb started to flash. And it said, here's a story that needs to be told. And it's a radical story about a pre, not a disco culture, actually, but a pre-disco culture that took place, that evolved in downtown in the under, in what is was we could probably call the underground. It wasn't a fake underground trying to be cool, but not really underground. This was a genuine radical underground, and it involved a rainbow coalition of dancers who came from disadvantaged backgrounds, whether they be LGBT or whether it be you know black or Latin or whether it be they be women, but they had been marginalised by society, and they had found communion and spirit and meaning and expressivity on the dance floor. And that culture had mushroomed in a remarkable way. And that had produced disco. And that story had not been told. 
And so I, you sat down. You sat down with him. Where did you sit down with him at his? Uh, was a, I forget the. There was a. It was a Italian family Italian restaurant in the East Village. It was David's okay. favorite. It was very very basic. We ate well. He was. He had a huge. He had, David had an appetite for everything: music, food, conversation, ideas. You know, did he, Stefan he, and Joe? Did Stefan and Joe go with you to that meeting? No, no, no. You went by yourself. And I actually don't. I don't know if they were even particularly. I don't think they were friendly with David as such. I think they actually had a bit of difficulty with David because David, as is reasonably well known, um, he was very specific about how he wanted lots of things done, and he had a very refined sense of ethics. And some people thought that there were inconsistencies there. Um, I as uh, I, I was always interested that. Even if there were, might have been some, we all have inconsistencies, let's be honest, um, to begin with. And I was interested that even if there were inconsistencies, his level of thinking about this culture, I felt was several paces ahead of, of pretty much anyone else I'd met. And I'd met some super interesting, super intelligent people who were also immersed in this culture. But David was asking questions and thinking in a way that I found was really compelling um it was supremely intelligent i thought it was highly advanced it was daring um and the 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 quarrel he was having with some other people in new york um was that uh, this this um bootleg series was being um issued and sold in dance tracks called love classics yes I know. and dave and david had nothing to do with it and um he didn't get any money from it. And he maintained to me, and I'm sure to others, that some of the records that were being released as Loft Classics were not actually records that were getting played at the Loft. So on numerous levels, he felt there was um, a problem with this. And he was basically um, so him, trying to get Stefan to stop selling them. David also didn't like bootlegs. He said, the artist is not being paid. Now there's counter arguments to all that we can we could dis- we could discuss this for the next two hours and we, maybe we don't want to but yes. I know that there's a bunch I know that some of the guys involved in that have a reply and the reply is look David you know these records were not available and David wasn't doing anything to make them available so the people who were making these available even as a bootleg were doing a pub- if you like a, a form of a public service. Um, they, I don't know if they had tried, I can't quite remember the details, if they even tried to team up with David, but David had maybe made moves to cooperate, but then had backed out. I, I forget. It doesn't really, there was a sort of, the thing is there was sort of a reply. Uh, but I, from the David point of view, I was just interested that he was so resistant to the idea of, of the bootleg itself. Um, and and he felt that someone was taking the lost name uh, in vain, effectively, uh, without his permission, and that that was a kind of trust. That's, but that's where I'm going to go with this. So how did he feel? How comfortable did he even feel about you even questioning his background or getting information? Because I knew when I was doing the Legend of the Dance Floor, he mm. didn't want to talk to me at all about um, Larry LeVan. Couldn't get him yeah. on so what was that oh. like for you dealing with him to get him to sit at that restaurant? He, you're basically he was, he was he couldn't stop. He didn't want to stop talking. And by the time I got back to the, the flat where I was living at the time, uh, there were five messages on the answer machine, all from people. This was an hour later, by the way. Maybe yeah, it probably took me an hour to get back from the East Village to up by I was living up by Columbia. 
And there were five, there was something like five, I don't know, I don't know if I'm, something's ringing on my... No, no, it's, it's just, okay. don't worry. Okay. Um, by the time I got back to the flat where I was living that night, there were five messages on, on the answer machine, and they were all from from people who David had contacted right away saying that they wanted to talk with me and would I would I interview them, basically. And this was like, whoa, this is like... Okay, so... I've got another you? interesting... Uh, it's a related story. Um, I don't often tell this. Um, I mean, don't often tell many of this stuff. because. Uh, but anyway, up until this point, I had felt like... I, was, I thought New York was an incredible city, but um, I didn't feel it. I felt like um, I wasn't. Sure, I didn't really think that there were there were there was a, a city that uh, where communities lived. Now, this is partly to do with my blinkered experience of being a student up by Columbia, no doubt, and just assuming and hearing these stories about how New York was a transient place where people would go and live for a few years before moving out to the suburbs where they get the bigger house and the backyard and the, this. And it was when I met David, really, that I started to appreciate the depth of communities that existed in the city. And that was when my a really deep attachment with New York formed, um, in a sense. It, 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 added a, it added a dimension to me. Uh, and it was, it was kind of, and it was, you know, it was partly David. He had lived there, you know, he hadn't lived there all his life. He'd gone to live there as an 18 year old. Uh, he'd grown up in this, in this children's home. Um, so he, the, the story was presenting itself to me and it meant that I had to go not only back to disco, but to pre-disco, but it was, it was so fascinating that I thought, yes, uh, I cannot say no. So I'd already lined up. This is, yeah, this is, so somehow I'd, I'd made some pretty quick moves. I had already lined up interviews with Frankie Knuckles, Tony Humphreys, and David Morales because I was writing a house music history. Okay. Um, and I went to do these interviews. They were all, they were all great interviews, actually, I have to, I have to say. Um, and at some point in all of the interviews, I made, I, I made a point of, of asking these guys. So I've met this guy, David Manguzo. He seems to be have been around somewhere at the beginning. He seems to have been had a really interesting life, and he seems to have been kind of quite a you know a, according to what he's telling me, quite a pivotal figure. Um, and I just wanted to see if you'd ever heard of him, or you know if he was you know and, and, and knew about the loft. And it was like the three replies I got from from Frankie and Tony and David was like they were near identical. It was like they were reading from a kind of hymn sheet or something. And they all said, you know, the loft transformed my experience of the dance floor. It was at the loft that I understood the potentiality of the dance floor in terms of sound, but also in terms of the social experience. Um, it was the most important thing that ever happened to me. Um, and I was just like, wow, you know, this is this. I've I've really I've really run I've really run into I bumped into something here, and it was chance in many respects. Um, but I understood that this I needed to take this very seriously because you you can always meet people who will exaggerate their importance uh, in terms of what they've contributed to history, uh, you know. And and so I was I there was a little bit of me that was wondering. Whether David, whether there was something about David, in if anything, David was underestimating his influence. Actually, I, it, it turned out. So the more I started to explore this story, the more I was blown away by the connections. So David, for example, he didn't particularly tell me that the Paradise Garage was directly inspired by the Loft. Uh, I don't think. I don't. Um, 
But, you know, I, I interviewed Mel Sharon reasonably, reasonably early into my research. And I asked him where the idea for the Paradise Garage had come. You know, what is this? And and Mel said, well, Michael and I, Michael Brady and I used to go and dance at the loft every every week. And I was like, well, did this have an impact on you? So, well, yeah, in a way, Michael's idea with the garage was to do an expanded version of the loft. I had never read this anywhere. No one had told me this. David didn't tell me this. But it's like, oh, you know, at the time, everything was about Frankie Knuckles at the warehouse and Larry Levan at the Paradise Garage. That was all you could read countless magazine art. The sure. books hadn't really come out yet, but there was countless magazine. Everyone agreed it was Frankie and Larry. Uh, it wasn't yet David, Nicky, Frankie, Larry, which is kind of right. a bit more that. Um, but I was like, wow, well, this is. And then, you know, I mean, the interview with Frankie, Frankie was like, we met Larry and I, we were on the Lancer or the Loft every week. You know, that was where we, it wasn't just Frankie, it was also Larry. Uh, Nikki Siano, I think it was, who probably told me, or maybe it was Francois Kevorkian, that, you know, Larry Levan, especially the opening years at the Paradise Garage, there was a box of loft records, you know, loft records that, you know, David records and a box of gallery records, and then there was the rest. So clearly David had... A little later into the research, um, I was interviewing Robert Williams, who was the founder of the, of the warehouse in Chicago, because I just felt I wanted to kind of track some of the stories about how the culture was spreading outside of New York. And of course, Disco Sucks was in Chicago. I obviously knew that Chicago was the birthplace of house music. So I wanted to kind of provide the backstory to that in, in Love Saves the Day. And I was in, you know, doing this interview with Robert Williams and I'll say, okay, so can you tell me a bit about your background? Like, how did you, how did you come to open the warehouse? And Robert was like, well, actually I didn't grow up in New York. I grew up in, in, sorry, I didn't grow up in Chicago. I grew up in New York. And uh, actually the, the key thing that happened to me is that one day I was standing by a bus stop and a guy came up to me and he said, oh, I like your t-shirt. I forget what the, I can't remember if Robert told me what the t-shirt was and if I recount this in Love Saves a Day or not. I like your t-shirt. And uh, start, and his, uh, this guy eventually said to Robert Williams, well, I, I run a party, you know, Saturday nights. Do you want to come along to one? And Robert went to this party. And it was, this was David Mancuso inviting Robert Williams randomly at a bus stop to the loft because he liked the look of them. And they had a, they had a nice conversation. And Robert Williams started to go to the loft every week, then moved for reasons I believe, as far as I can remember, were related to work, moved to um, Chicago. Chicago. And um, and was telling all his friends about how amazing these loft parties were. And the friends said, look, why don't you start a party? You know, stop talking about it and do one. And that was the warehouse. And as, as is well known, uh, Robert asked Frank, uh, Larry Levan to be the DJ, but the Paradise Garage was, was about to open and Larry was committed to that. So Robert turned to Frankie Knuckles. Even in Chicago, even the, where, the warehouse, the legendary party, the mythological birthplace of house music, if we want to call it that, because house music started in 1984 and the warehouse closed in, I think, the spring of 1983. So there was a bit of a gap. But without the warehouse, maybe maybe house music wouldn't have happened indeed. But it wasn't that house music kind of happened at the warehouse. We The, the house music term did, but that's another story. We don't have to get into that just yet, or maybe not at all. But even at the warehouse, David's influence was kind of... And then, you know, there was a David in this first interview was talking about the New York record pool. I hadn't heard of the New York record pool. I hadn't read about... No, and most people were sort of didn't find that kind of thing particularly interesting because it was about DJs organising in relationship to record companies. It was like the politics of the, the sociology of the culture, if you like. But to me, it was like, wow, this is DJs acting as a collective group 
and understanding that in a way they were providing this incredible service to the, to the record companies. They were making the record companies millions and they were having to go and buy their vinyl, even though they had insecure jobs that weren't very paid very well for the most part. And David saw, you know, because of David's sensibility, we could call it his politics, if you like, he thought this was an injustice. He thought it was exploitation and he hated exploitation. Um, he hated violence, he hated, including economic violence, and he felt that the DJs needed to be better treated. So, he, you know, he had this space in Prince Street, he had kind of a few floors. He had made this move uh, when uh, the Broadway, the loft on uh, 647 Broadway was forced to close down in the summer of 1974. It's, it's a whole story, we don't have to get into that now, but he moved to Prince Street in Soho, so he went from NoHo to Soho had this space, opened the New York Record Ball. In this first interview, he mentioned the New York Record Ball. I was like, oh, yeah, that, well, that was the gallery. That's the, wrong one. That's the wrong one. Go ahead. So the gallery was, you know, but so it was just like, it was almost like wherever, and this is what Love Saves the Day became. It wasn't, you know, it became, I mean, apart from anything else, this was, I set out thinking this is going to be the intro chapter to the book on house music. And by the time I'd reached what was effectively page 500, I had got to 1979. And so, cool. So let me understand that because the theory of this whole thing. So you sit down with Mancuso, he spurts out all the names of all the players, Steve D'Aquisto, Michael yeah. Capello, yeah, yeah, yeah. Record Club, because he was in part of it. Your phone rings that day around. Who were the people calling to do the interviews with you? Oh, I can't remember all, all the all the names, actually. Uh, but definitely Steve D'Aquisto was, was one of them. And um, I'm trying to think who else. In, I don't know if it was Freddie Taylor, maybe, who's a sort of somewhat forgotten figure, who would it was uh, one of the first people who would stand step in for David when he needed to take a break at Prince Street in particular, because the, <laughs> the parties at Prince Street started going for a very long time. They would start at midnight, and at one point they were going on until 8 o'clock the next evening. Uh, and David's kind of, you know, he wouldn't see daylight for the whole day. Um, so that was, so there may have been Freddie Taylor, um, yeah, sorry, I could go and check my notes, but that's that's too long ago to remember all of this. But definitely Steve, because then a, a, quite a number of my early interviews with David were, were joined by Steve would come along, and Steve was another larger-than-life figure. And he was quite a dominant, he was full of ideas, he had a, you know, lots of memories, lots of ideas. He was quite a dominant figure, actually. And David, it was a, they got to be a point where, they, you know, Steve was doing a lot of the talking. So, so, so uh, there was, there was some ten, there was, they, they loved each other, David and Steve, but there was some tension between them as well at points. Sure. It's a tension, it's a tension that goes back to the record pool. There was even yes. one, there was one interview in which, because, you know, it's, it's there in Love Saves the Day, you know, Steve DeQuist uh, basically went to record store with one of these promotional records. And David wanted to be very strict about this. He said, in order to get the trust of the record companies, we have to be very clear that we don't try and resell these promotional records to the record stores to make money, because that will upset the record companies and they'll stop giving us promotional records. Uh, there were other things that the record Paul insisted on doing, but this was one of the hallowed rules, if you like. And on one occasion, um, Steve DeQuisto went and, and took a uh, took a record, uh, bu a bunch of records that, according, you know, as far as Steve was concerned, it was a record that it wasn't a very good record. The record they had been given tons of them at the record pool. They couldn't get; they just didn't know what to even do with them. They were supposed to be a prize for a dance competition. I don't even remember exactly the details, but you know, Steve just like 
did did the naughty thing basically and went to a record company. This got back to David, and they had a certain blowout at that particular moment. Steve actually backed away from the loft for a few years, but then then reunited with David and they became very close again. But somehow or other, this must have been either 1997 or 1998, they rehearsed this argument in front of me for an hour. And it was it was ferocious. Um, it was like there was no there was no let up in the passion. Uh, oh, wow. It was extraordinary. Uh, so Steve basically, Steve, because I figured Steve had uh, have a big hand in this, because I knew I remember when I was speaking to him, he his knowledge of everything and his memory bank was locked in to everything going yeah. on around at that time. Yeah. But the question I get from a lot of people, because of Francis Grasso, and you wrote about that mm -hmm. as well, being the first yeah, guy yeah. to to work, who gave you the information? Right, to, to blend, as they call with it. Steve. Steve was in touch with France. Steve was, a, was based in Brooklyn, and he knew Michael Capello. They were best mates. Michael uh, Capello. They were, there's Michael. Hello, Michael. Yeah, from, your, from, your, from wearing yeah. Abbott's pictures, right, from Leisure yeah, Dead. Yeah. Yeah, so Steve, how, Steve was friends with Michael. Yeah, Steve, had, Steve was still in touch with like Michael. I think they they definitely drifted. Michael had completely left the scene around about 1980. Uh, he'd ended up going to get a job in Germany after kind of when Disco Sucks kind of kicked in. He stayed in Germany, as far as I can remember, for maybe a year or two. And then he came back and that was that. And he went into, as far as I can remember, at least the time I met him, he was in construction. Uh, I really like Michael. Um, you know, and I just had people, everyone I spoke to loved Michael. Nikki Siano loved Michael. Lisa Hazel loved Michael. Steve loved Michael. I mean, it was, it was, he was good looking. He was charming and he was sweet. He actually, he wasn't very, Michael wasn't ambitious. Um, there were some people in the scene, probably Steve is, was one of them who had a certain sort of ambition. They had a, they had a certain drive and they wanted to have a certain kind of, they, they wanted it. They craved a certain kind of recognition, but I don't think Michael was that person. Michael just had a gift and a feel and uh, he loved the he loved the pleasurable aspects of it. You know, he enjoyed doing all the things that guys, you know, guys and women were doing back then, staying up all night, taking, you know, taking whatever they wanted to take, loving the music. And Michael was a very, very gifted, instinctive DJ. Um, he had a feel. It was a lot of the a lot of what was going on back then was was about feel. Uh, and Michael had, you know, had that feel as much as anyone. There's no question. So, so Steve introduced me to Michael, uh, and Steve introduced me to Francis. It, it, I think I can't. Quite, I don't know. They weren't really particularly in touch with each other. They certainly weren't hanging out. I mean, you've got to remember this is 1997, and they probably hadn't seen each other for years and years and years. And but uh, but he was able to track down Francis, and I was particularly touched to be able to to meet with Fra i really love francis what was that like dealing meaning it was very francis was just the, the sweetest guy um he i think he he died i forget the i would look it up quickly uh if i but i don't want to interrupt the, the conversation but um it was before the book came out francis grasso passed away which was which, which was a big regret I'm 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 98 percent sure of this. Um, my memory sometimes plays tricks with me. But Francis, I would say he was he was struggling at that point in his life. Um, he was drinking during the day. Um, I mean, he's probably not the only person to do that. But I mean, he he died quite soon quite soon after 
Um, so he was, you know, he did, he looked like a bit of a battered human being, but he spoke with a passion and a singularity that was, was remarkable really. And I, and I loved, I, he, um, he also wanted to tell his story. I think that, um, more than, I think to a certain extent, this, this guy called Albert Goldman, who was quite a well-known journalist in the late 1960s and 1970s, had written this book called Disco that I think came out maybe in 1978, maybe in 1979. And it was really a book about about Studio 54. But he did interview Francis, and there was some some detail about the backdrop of, of um, Francis in that book. So Francis had had, but, you know, this book was long out of circulation. And, you know, Francis, there was exactly the kind of person who, in the, the histories that were starting to come out at this moment, would get a two-line reference as being the person who was an early DJ who had started, who had invented the beat mix kind of thing. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I, I, interviewed, I did conducted several interviews with Francis. He was incredibly sweet. Uh, not, I mean, I don't know if it was maybe a year after I started, you know, uh, had done these interviews with him, or maybe it was nine months into it or something. Uh, Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, who were star, who were beginning to write uh, last night, a DJ saved my life, uh, approached him and they wanted to interview him. And he actually didn't want to. In- he didn't want to do the interview with with them. Um, I'm not saying this in the least bit against Bill and Frank, of course, no, but, good guys. Fran- but, Fran- but Francis just wanted to. He felt that we had had a deep engagement that I was, you know, that and we had, we had developed a, a kind of an understanding, if you like, a rapport. And he he just felt I was he wanted me to tell his story and he didn't want anyone else to do it. Um, I mean, eventually, Bill and he did you know Bill and Frank kind of knocked on his door, sort of thing, and uh, he he did some sort of interview with them. He I you know I think he was a bit startled really. Um, I you know I think last night a DJ saved my life is a really valuable book. It makes a really important you know it covers a lot of ground. But the photo that they ran of of Francis. I'm bound to say I thought that was unfortunate. Um, it was like Francis was looking not too good. He was startled. Um, and it was like the caption was something like, this is what, you know, this is what like years of DJing does to you or something, you know, like you've got this kind of, you, you look like you're, you look like you're suffered. I mean, Francis also, as, as I kind of recount in the book, in Love Saves Day, I should say, uh, he got beaten up by the mafia. Um, because the mafia were controlling a lot of the discotheques in the early 1970s, and Francis had gone to play for uh, I think I think it was a disc a, a discotheque that was named after him, Cafe Francis. I think it was on that move he'd left he'd left a kind of mafia-run discotheque in order to do it, and he got beaten up as a result, and his nose was broken. And so you know he'd gone he, you know he'd gone through some 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 unpleasant stuff, and uh, yeah, it was just. You know, it was it was it was it was obviously meant in a humorous way. This caption, but then you know, but you know, I thought it was a bit unfortunate. And Francis died not that long afterwards. So, um, so yeah, that was the bit of. But it was you know, there was Francis, and he really engaged. And Michael was Michael clearly felt a bit funny about talking to me. And I've had several Why? people afterwards because for him, this was something that he did. In I don't I can't remember his exact age when he started DJing. He might have been nineteen. He might have been eighteen. He he Probably might have even been seventeen. Probably seventeen. And he did it for. He might have done it for ten years, but then he left it behind. There's some people. Maybe I, I think you might be in this camp, um, Lenny, and I'm beginning to think I'm in this camp as well. 
who some and David Mancuso was in this camp that something and we know whole, we know we could name we could name a whole load of people who are who are here where something happens to you and this ends up becoming a, an important part of your life and you never really stop one way or another but there are other people for whom this is a phase of life uh, they get into it for a period but then it kind of it stops having that resonance with them they get into other stuff some people get into wine some people get into food some people just want to devote themselves you know to get into watching tv or something you know something changes that what it was that they enjoyed doing when they were younger and and they he wasn't bo- he wasn't bothered he wasn't um he didn't come across as being someone who had a, a particularly strong ego as such um and he wasn't that he wasn't too bothered about having his name in lights or being recognized for his contribution i don't think i thought he i think he thought it was a fun thing that he t- he took part in um and that you know and it was it was good while it lasted but he had moved on and that, the other thing is there's not everyone wants people to kind of start digging about what they were getting up to when they were kind of 21 um you know the stories that get to be told you know, and Steve was very open about these stories. I think Mike, Michael was a little bit uh, more guarded about these stories. You know, Steve told me the first time that, you know, he took over doing a DJ solo spot, stepping in, I think, for Francis Grasso. He, he took uh, he took LSD before DJing and then found he was kind of incapable, you know, found it almost impossible to kind of carry out his duties as the DJ that night. And Francis came along and was like, what the hell are you doing taking acid before you make your DJing debut? So Steve didn't mind everyone knowing this, but, you know, not everyone wants this kind of stuff in print. I, you know, this much I know from, from you know, all sorts of people. What's Other it, people, what's you know, it, that's also something to, that was something to always, you know, it's very important that everyone was, was comfortable with what appeared in the book about them. I didn't want to start, look, you, you, you can't talk about this scene and pretend that there's no drugs and there's no sex. And yet at the same time, you don't want to start doing it as a kind of sensationalist expose because it's about the dance floor, it's about the music, it's about the culture. And that's always got to be central. But you can't cut everything away from that. I love the stories about the DJs who would get together at four o'clock in the morning and go for breakfast and what they would order and what cafe they would go to because it was part of the culture. And it brought it to life. It was three, it became three-dimensional. This was a lifestyle. It was a new lifestyle that people were leading. I didn't want to cut all that out. I didn't want it to be a bare bones dry. Well, the one DJ DJ puts on a record, and this is how they mix to another record. You have that information in there, but you've got to. It's got to be about life because this is about life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but there's there's certain there's there's certain people who feel sensitive about certain things being said, um, and so you got to kind of walk that path. Mike, uh, Michael just came across as being someone who was happy to collaborate, but he didn't want to be doing lots of interviews. It wasn't very important to him. Well, you know what it is, is people looking for him now for interviews because, mm. you know, there's this romance to find certain people mm. yeah, that yeah. are still alive. And yeah. I get constant questions from people asking me, is Michael Capello even alive? <laughs> I think I asked yeah. you the same question and I was like, well, are you sure? Because I know you have the pictures and you did all the research and Steve, and I know Steve was very close to Michael. Mm. They're all a lot of them are past now. I mean, obviously, Steve part Steve, even before the book came out, he died, he had a brain tumor and died. It was very quick, it was very tragic. Um, I've had different, I've had this with all three books. It was especially with the first Love Saves the Day and then the last one, Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor, which covered the the next period, like 80 to 83. And you know, during that, I thought, oh, hello, I recognize this. Yep, this is. 
So, you know, during I interviewed Mark Caymans, the dance interior DJ, who's such a sweetheart and a really key figure and also an unrecognized figure in many ways. Uh, I mean, Mark would only normally get a mention as being a boy, a one-time boyfriend of Madonna. That's how most people would refer to Mark. But he was an incredible DJ with an incredible vision and heart, actually, um, and connection. I mean, everyone thought Danceteria was like a, you know, a rock punk kind of club, but it was so much more complicated. That's what this last book is about. It explores all the connections that were actually happening between the post-disco dance scene the, what I call the art punk scene or the post-punk scene, and then this emerging rap and hip-hop scene. And when I arrived in New York City in the 1990s, everyone assumed that these scenes were kind of at war with each other. You know, the punks and the dance people and the rap hip-hop people, they weren't having conversations. But that was because New York City had become a battleground from the election of from the 1980s onwards. Um so that's another story, which maybe we, we won't get into. But but the scenes had subdivided and become had become antagonistic to each other. But really, if you dig into the 1980s, Mark Kamen's wasn't just a punk rock DJ at all. No, I know and that. He was, he was tight with Larry Levan. And he, you know, he would bring records to David Mancuso. And, and he was also into hip, hip hop and rap. And so that was actually what New York. You know, there's three different books, but it's really one book, I, I always kind of think. And it's about New York. It's about the music and the dance floors that and the DJs and the music that evolves in New York City in this time of incredible cultural expression and interaction. And it's no surprise that, in fact, you know, someone like Mark... Anyway, so Mark, they were, in, they were having conversations with each other. And you look at the records of the early 80s. I know we're jumping forward a bit here. You look at a record like... I mean, the three that I always pick out, A Dinosaur L... Arthur Russell's lineup. One of his lineups go bang. Uh, Peach Boys don't make me wait, which was the band Larry Levan was involved with, Michael to Benedictus. Larry and, um, Hi, Larry, and um, and uh, Planet Rock, Africa Van Basten and Soul Sonic Force, and all those, all three records in ways that we won't have time to get into here crossed over between these three scenes, the punk scene, the post-disco dance scene, the emergent rap hip-hop scene. Um, there was all this interaction, and you could hear it in the music, and you could only write about this period properly if you saw the interconnectivity. But sometime down the line, the scenes went to war with each other. Um, there's reasons for that. It's about AIDS, it's about the crack epidemic, it's about Reagan's government cutting welfare and, you know, being, you know, attacking African-American communities and all sorts of things put these communities on the defensive. And they started to defend themselves. Instead of being open, because I can't get on the screen doing this, I'm spreading my arms. Whereas the 70s and the early 80s were a time of openness and where people, all these conversations were starting uh, and were being explored. Then, you know, the city became a hostile terrain, property price inflation, Wall Street exploding, stockbrokers taking over. And that's what put people in a defensive position. Uh, and that's what led to the division of these scenes. And whether there's a reopening up, I think maybe there is to a certain extent now, as people people's ears reopen, uh, the internet's contributing to this in part. I don't know. But anyway, Mark was one of these figures. Uh, he passed away before the book Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor came out. Anita Sarko was an extraordinary DJ. She was the you know, in a way, the most definitely the most radical DJ at the Mud Club, and maybe the most notorious. Although she ended up being playing Mondays and Tuesdays, i.e., the night when only the regular insiders would go, not when the big crowds would go. And Anita Sarko was kind of supposedly a punk DJ, but she was maybe 
she was an extraordinarily eclectic DJ. And she had very interesting conversations with Larry Levan. And again, you're not supposed, they're not supposed to be having, Africa Bambata was going to the Paradise Garage. Fafai Freddy was going to the Paradise Garage. He took Keith Herring to the Paradise Garage, and Keith, of course, ended up... There was all these connections. That, but anyway, sorry, I'm getting carried away with... No, stories. you're right. No, and I'm glad you're mentioning that, because those interludes, interludes how the metamorphosis change in the garage because of those, yeah. those likes coming in and changing. But yeah, and look, Larry was into oh, ESG, you yes. know, bands like ESG and stuff. And the ESG were coming out of 99 Records, and it was kind of part of this you know, post-punk scene. But Larry had the flavor for that kind of liquid, liquid. You know, we know this, right? But, you know, you weren't, it wasn't kind of, you couldn't read about that in the punk histories and you couldn't read about that in the disco or house music histories. That's why this early 80s period, which hadn't been written about properly, was kind of so interesting to me. But it's, anyway, the point is it was Anita Sarko, it was very, she died by suicide. Um, she had also fallen out of sync with the times. Um, so it's, it's it's heartbreaking when you write a book, you interview someone, you want to tell their story, and then you really want them to read this story. Um, not around. Not they, they, deserve, they required, they needed, the, the recognition was overdue, and if they didn't even make it, as, as happened with the case of, this, of, of the number of people to the publication, it's kind of, it's very, it's really, you know. It's heartbreaking, but then at least their story is there. That's kind of that's the main. At least I did. At least these interviews were conducted, and these stories were told. As for Michael, we kind of already said this, but I I I I've lost touch with him. He didn't obviously particularly want to stay in touch. I understand that, and I'm fine with that. I could try and dig out whatever phone number I had for him. That's maybe. Michael Capello, everybody. That's yeah. the understanding. Everyone also Michael Capello was a you know everyone kind of found him attractive very attractive uh he was a kind of you know he was a bit of a icon i think physical icon but it was also because of his sweetness i think it wasn't just because he was like was he like that too when you sat and talked with him was he very you know like he still seemed quite shy he seemed quite shy he was a, he was older he was an attractive man and he, yeah, was a good, he was a good, he was a good, he was a, you know, I think I, he must have, I'm just trying to think how old he might have been when I spoke, but he was probably in his late fifties. Um, he had, you know, he had, we all, we all age a bit. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was, it was really lovely meeting him. And he was, you know, he was humble. Uh, he was sweet. Um, he was happy to talk, but he wasn't like Steve. Steve still had a hunger. Uh, and as I mean, rewinding back to the beginning of this kind of you know elongated winding you know story that we've been on for the last however many minutes, um, you know Steve was 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 powerful figure, and I had to separate Steve and David basically in order to do proper interviews with them because otherwise they would be either arguing or disagreeing, whatever it might. Sometimes these things can be productive, but sometimes they can be not not so productive. And, uh, so uh, speaking from one journalist, because now I kind of consider myself a media mogul now because of this job that we've you all You certainly had. are. Um, how do you verify what they're telling you? Very good question. It's you very know, hard. You... I mean, you try like the, it was useful. There were certain certain publications came out, so which were useful. Um, a melting Pot which was a in-house um, magazine created by Bob Casey for what was, I forget what the name, even now the name of his organization was, but it was a 
it emerged around the, just before or around the same time as the New York City record pool. Um, he wanted it to be a more of a serious professional organization. Um, he was very friendly and got on board figures like Bobby Guttataro, uh, Guttataro and Richard Kazar, who were very influential. Oh, Bobby. That's Bobby. Bobby Guttataro. So there were so many, there were so many hot and on the ball, you know, DJs. They were David Rodriguez. Rodriguez yeah, he was in Melting Pot too. They were all, a lot yeah. of these pictures were Melting Pot. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't, um, well that, yeah, I don't know, but I can't remember. David might well have been actually, I can't remember. I know that Bobby Guttadar and Richie Kazar were involved, um, uh, but it kind of ended up imploding. Um, Bob Casey, you know, he was a, it was, it, he was a, he was a kind of peer of Alex Rosner. He was setting up lots of sound systems. Um, he, David Mancuso invited him to the loft to get some tips. And Bob Casey took a look around and he said, you know, actually you should be giving me tips, not the other way around. You know, I, I can't do better than what you've got here. Uh, David was already deep into developing a, a remarkable sound system. Um, so, um, I'm just, I'm losing my drift a bit or whatever, whatever it was that we were the verification process. Yeah, right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Sorry. So, um, <laughs> no, that's great. Well, well remembered. So there were lots of, um, there were lots of, I'm just trying to remember why I started the kind of, yeah, was what, what had led me to talk about Richie, Richie Kazar and Bobby Guttadaro. But, um, but to make the point anyway, is that, oh, that's right, the publication. So Bob Casey had, uh, had Melting Pot. Michael Gomes, uh, who ended up becoming a very good friend of Francois Kevorkian and was a real fan of and very close with Nicky Siano, wrote this news sheet called Mixmaster, which was hilarious, witty, incisive, gossipy, and very interesting in terms of its analysis. It was like a remarkable kind of phenomenon. And so Michael, actually it was Francois who had a complete set of these, and Francois was kind enough to copy his set and give it to me at Michael Gomes's request. So these kind of things nail a few things down. Okay, now it makes uh, sense. Now it makes when, sense. When, when, uh, when Record World started to come out, uh, Dis- Vince Alessi was invited to do the Disco Files column in Record World. I think that started in, am I right in remembering it's very late 1974, maybe it gets going, I think. So that would help. But, the, but the, this earlier period, the first four years of the decade, are very murky, really. There's not much to go on. And it's really, it's really about... Uh, what I found myself doing was interviewing people relentlessly. I mean, I interviewed, I think it was probably a hundred people for Love Saves the Day, but many of those people I interviewed several times because it was a matter of getting the story, comparing it with another story, working out where the inconsistencies were, going back, checking. You know, I, I sort of remember that David didn't have a bunch of his kind of own dates in order. I think he, you know, he, I think I can't remember the details necessarily, but he made a very significant trip to London in in the summer of 1973. Um, but I think maybe he was remembering it to be the summer of 1972. Um, yeah. This can sound very pedantic, but when you then understand that the gallery had opened shortly before David made this trip as a straight version of the loft, uh, not that the loft was gay, by the way. The loft was very, very mixed. And David, one of David's lines to me, lines to me, which I've always thought was very important, is no one was checking your identity at the door. 
early on, I kept asking David, was, was, was the loft a black gay party? Was it black and gay? Was it a black gay party? And David said, you know, like there were, there were black people there and there were gay men there and, and there were bla- black gay men there, but it was not, it was, it was not a black gay party. All sorts of people would go there. Every divine would go there. You know, he would say, how do you categorize her? That was one of his lines. It's, um, his whole, it's the point is David was interested in human beings and he wanted human beings to dance together, whatever their background, you know, his model. And he only came to understand this later was his experience of growing up in the children's home, aged two days old. And that was a home for the dispossessed. It didn't matter who they, you know, they were welcomed um, by these nuns as it happens uh, and looked after. It didn't matter what their background was. And that was David's approach. This is a place of refuge where you can come and express yourself, relax, whatever, wherever you're coming from. This is a space where you can, you know, enter into a different world that is tolerant, that is open and is driven by music and dance. Uh, so David's like, no one is checking your identity at the door. And when the Paradise Garage ended up, splitting a gay night and a, and a basically a mixed but de facto straight night around about 1980 david was very upset by this now of course there were plenty of people who didn't agree with david and they said look black gay men in particular who were the dominant group and latin gay men who were the dominant group at the paradise garage on the saturday night they were outcasts in society and they wanted to be able to have a place that they could call their own and i can understand this and plenty of people believe in this um, and I wouldn't, I would never want to be the person who says that shouldn't exist. Of course, if, if people gathering want to gather in that way, then that's, that's important. And it becomes an important place of freedom and expression and, you know, a home. Um, but I also felt very drawn to David's utopian vision of everyone coming together under, under one space. So, uh, anyway, Nicky opened the gallery as a, as a straight, he'd got kicked out of the loft eventually because he was caught dealing drugs three times and David's policy was, you know, three, 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 three times and you're kind of out or whatever. Nicky was vivacious and expressive and hungry and hilarious and obsessed with music and DJing. He'd already started to DJ in some public discotheques and he wanted to start a party and he kind of got some money together through, I think, a brother's friend. Uh, he was kind of partnered up with Robin Lord, who was a one-time kind of girlfriend for a little bit, but then they just became kind of best mates or something. Yeah, that's the gallery dance floor with blowing up balloons. I think Frankie Knuckles might be one of these. I can't. Yeah, and the tap and the tap picture yeah. with, with the baseball cap. Um, so the gallery opened in the in the sometime around the spring of 1973, and it flopped. It completely flopped. It just wasn't working. But then David went away in the summer of 73 to Europe. That's when he actually picked up Barabbas, woman, and um, Wild Safari um, at a flea market, I think, in, in Amsterdam, from what I can remember. Uh, but he went to Europe for the summer. And that, and the night before David went, um, you know, the last party, I should say, before David went, Nikki was outside the front giving flyers, saying, you want to carry on the party? Come to the gallery next week. And all of a sudden, the gallery took off. Now, the, so whether David said he went, all of a sudden, David saying, he, did he go to the, the um, New York City in the summer of 1972, uh, sorry, to Europe in the summer of 1972, or the summer of 73, all of a sudden, that becomes really significant because we can then know when the gallery opens, partly according to that, and, be absolute, and we can also know about changes that happen in the loft 
and its place in the world. Because once David comes back, the galleries exploded. What happens yeah. to David's crowd? And, and look at Nicky now. He's at that point. He's Miss Liberty. But that's David what I'm saying. Was, Nicky that's... was quite a deal. I mean, David was a bit of an introvert and Nicky was an extrovert. Oh, totally opposites. They are totally opposites. Nicky's but, you know, they had the out. interesting conversation as well. So, and the other thing is, you know, Frankie was, you know, Frankie got, partly got his break his breakthrough by volunteering to blow up balloons uh, at the gallery and then introduced Larry Levan to the gallery. Oh, so these dates really matter. I mean, it's, it's only a year, but whole kind of biographies and stories get built on these dates. Uh, and including also the other thing is that it was a very significant year for, for David because when David was in London, he told, and this is a kind of memory I think you can trust. He said, I was reading a newspaper and I read about the collapse of the Broadway Central. And the Broadway Central was a hotel that was actually linked physically, as far as I can remember, to uh, the Mercer Street Art Centre, which housed the kitchen. Uh, as it happens, an experimental music space where Arthur Russell became music director um, in 1970, I can't quite remember, so 74, 73 to 74, I think. Um, so the Broadway Central was a neighbouring, it was a kind of hotel complex that was linked to the Mercer Street Arts Centre and was around the corner, kind of backed onto, as far as I can remember, the broad, 647 Broadway, where David was living. And it was when this this build this hotel collapsed that summer, and David read about it in the newspaper while he was in London, and he thought, "Uh oh!" And indeed, it's a hugely significant moment because after that, the inspectors started started a swarm around the whole area because I think you know it'd been a big tragedy, and maybe a few couple of a handful of people had died as well. Certainly, lots of injuries and major concerns, and the inspectors started to look at uh, uh, internal. Um, internal kind of um, construction changes that had been carried out without permission because that was why the Broadway Central had collapsed. And David had undertaken some changes that he always maintained to me were not structural and that they were safe in order to expand into the next department. He had basically broken through some historic arches that had been filled out. Um, so he said they were safe, but the but the inspectors were all of a sudden onto him. And it was a year later, basically, that the lot was closed because of the the, the rate of this inspection so do you i'm just this is a bit no it's right no but you know what that Most point, i knew if i can find out if i can find that newspaper article in the new york times that is reporting on the broadway central collapsing we know that that was the summer that david was in london and we know that that was when the gallery exploded and we know that that's when frankie knuckles and larry levan started entering into the scene and not before because I think Frankie in the, our interview had told me that he basically started DJ, maybe the first interview he started DJing in 1971 or 72. And I was like, that that sounds early to me. Uh, but let me try and check uh, and try and so So this was, it was all about these different stories. And it's not that Frankie was being dishonest. It's just that people were being asked about stuff that they hadn't really been asked about many times before. And in some cases, hadn't been asked about at all. So it was about comparing and contrasting and just finding, you know, just like cohering stories and going back to people and saying, well, I've just spoken to this person and they say this and that says that. So I think this means that you did that and trying to basically get consent. Um, and the other thing is just working out who are the people who are driven by a belief in what ha the, what the scene, if a, what the scene offered. And the way in which it offered to transform people's lives in a meaningful way, 
through music and dance because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted this group of D of this group of DJ. The DJs obviously emerged as the heroes of the book. They wanted to change the world, you know, for the better. They wanted music to become better. They wanted sound systems to become better. They wanted people to have more opportunity to dance, um, to experience life, uh, you know, in a pleasurable way. And so it's working out who was, you know, who was in it from that point of view and who was in it maybe, you know, I don't want to say in a more cynical way, but someone who was maybe, you know, who's was more prone to exaggerating their contribution and uh, just through interviews you 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 sometimes get a feel of that and that's something we all find that you know sometimes people will change it or what i call rewash history so yeah, it's cleaner mis- and- maybe misremember maybe misremember well, for a cleaner outcome, let's put it like that, because some of these outcomes are not as pretty as they like us to believe they are, yeah. you know, unless, and I've been in my own document, to, uh, you know, between verifying my own things and talking to others. And sometimes you start to hear the same story different than what yeah. you've gotten starts to make you lend that minute. Yeah, exactly. So you, 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 you're, you're here as well. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you're doing, you're doing the, the you're involved in the same sort of process, I guess. You're doing a great job, though. I'm just happy to hear <laughs> that you were able to get all this down before the the key people were gone. Yeah, because- well, yeah. No, absolutely. And it was, I mean, I haven't said this yet, but it was, it just felt like this was, I was so fortunate, you know, to be me. But yet, but yet people- I want to say this to you, but yet you were hating on it at first. It was <laughs> wonderful. That's why I'm sitting here going, Man, you're hating on this, but yet you're writing such something that's so biblical that never yeah. was ever explained nor ever written like this. Well, pieces yeah. were like Melting Pot and other stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. trade that magazines, was- but nothing that was of substantiability of this, guys. Nothing like oh, this. Exi- thank you. Thank you. You don't have to. So uh, you're being very kind. And, uh, but I really just felt in a genuine, in a genuine way that I was. I, I was just surprised that I felt, in a way, I felt like, who am I to be writing this this history? You know, I hadn't lived in New York. I hadn't gone to the loft in 1970. I hadn't gone to the loft in 1982. I hadn't gone to the Paradise Garage. I came to live in New York in 1994. But um, in the end, you know, I had some people sort of criticise me. I, I didn't really... Yeah, what was some of the criticism? I didn't really... I, this, I accept all sorts of criticism, actually, and we can. We don't really have that much time left, but um, I'm not... I, criticism is, is fine. You know, constructive criticism, of course, I've, we've all got things that we can continually learn. Um, we should never get too com- too settled in, in who we are or what we're saying. So that's, that's all good. But some people said, how can you write about this culture when you weren't there? You know, and I was there. And some people say I was there, and I'm not going to read this book. But what I what I did genuinely find is that number one, it became an active advantage that I wasn't there and that I wasn't from New York because I didn't walk into this with a prior allegiance, saying, "Yeah, I was going out to this place." Therefore, I'm. You know, I mean, I'm not being critical of Mel's book for example, at all. But Mel had his allegiances, clearly. He had his interests and he was... So it's a diff- look, it's an autobiography. It's not a historical account of the of what happened. 100% it's his story. very well said. And, and, it's great, and, it's great, and it's great for being that story, but it's not a historical account of the scene because Mel was in that scene and he had a partial... Mel did not like David. He was very, he really didn't want to talk about David. 
they had an argument, um, I think it was around, I mean, it may have been before, but certainly around the time of Larry Levan's death. And, and it left Mel very, very unhappy. And these kind of, look, when I, when I was going around, I, there were lots of, there was lots of what we would say in the Jewish community, Bruegus. People were upset with each other. There'd been arguments and people had been hurt. And a lot of people hadn't got over this. And the shit happens, people fall out. It's a passionate culture. And, you know, people with passion comes energy. And sometimes that is positive and sometimes it can lead to fallings out. So this happens, but it was, it was, it was an advantage for me. And it's an advantage for any, to come from, to be seen as someone who didn't have all these prior allegiances and could come and tell, you know, people would tell me their stories and I would do my honest best, best to find a way. I had a bunch of guys who we could sort of say came from the white gay scene, um, which kind of found its main expression first on Fire Island, uh, Ice Palace and Sandpiper, then at the 10th floor, then at Flamingo, then at 12 West, and latterly at The Saint, but that came out in 1980 and was a bit outside of the scope of Love Saves the Day, though I write about it in, in the last book. Um, and they... Really, and I had a few people. That's flamingo, yeah. That's a lovely picture. Flamingo, flamingo. Turntables. Uh, I got a colour slide of that, so it's a shame it's in black and white. But there you go. Um, Michael Fesco was another real sweetheart, by the way. The guy who opened opened flamingo and also ran the ice palace. But there was a few guys from the white gay scene, if you, if I can call it that, who said, "Hang on a second, David um, David Mancuso wasn't didn't invent, for want of a better term, disco, or wasn't the first. We were." And I did my research and I concluded that if you want to go back in time at the very beginning of, and by the way, the key thing for me in this culture is not discotheque. Discotheque culture goes back to the early 60s and before. So, oh, I see my charger hasn't been in and I'm suddenly on a low battery. I don't want this to end. Boy. So let me plug myself in quickly. Um, but we'll wrap this up because you okay, come. Good. You get into the um, point. Yeah, I did. I did, I look, I did my look. For the, the culture starts for me when the DJ begins to respond to the dancing crowd. And the D, there were plenty of DJs in the 1960s, but they did not enter into a conversation with the crowd. And the first, D, David never liked being called a DJ, but if we use this for shorthand, the first DJs who responded dynamically and entered into a conversation with the dancers, the first ones to do it were Francis Grasso and David Mancuso. And I cannot be absolutely sure when Francis Grasso, he was at the sanctuary already, but the key change was when the sanctuary, Simon Shelley, who ran, ran gay bars in the West Village, uh, bought the sanctuary and were the first um, owners of a public discotheque to admit uh, LGBT dancers into, and, on, into, a, into, a public, into a public discotheque. And they did this sometime towards the beginning of 1970. I know that on New Year's Eve, Francis remembered that on New Year's Eve, it was still in the hands of the sanctuary, was still in the hands of the previous owner. So David, we know the first proper party that became known as the Loft somewhat later was, was 14th of February, 1970. That was a Saturday night. There was a Valentine's Day party. We know that was, whether the sanctuary was that same week, two weeks, it doesn't really matter. But we know, I know, we, this was the argument of the book. Uh, I don't think it quite been made before, you know, Bill Bruce from Frank Brown. So their book is much more of a, a wide span of the history of DJ culture. And they begin with Jimmy Savile, 
a radio DJ primarily in the UK who then went actually became later disgraced as a serial child abuser. Isn't that sad? Shameful, shameful story. But you know, there's, there's a different book that has serves the purpose of a much more meta overview of all the dip, you know, hip hop, everything is in there. And it's it's a, it's a very, it does a very good job of that. My point was like, where did this culture begin? And you know, and it was in nine, and it was about this. It was about this about this communication. Um, and you know, and so I was would go back to the, <clears throat> these guys who would who would email me afterwards and say, well, you know, we started it. And I'd say, well, I did my research, and if you can point to the point where there's a there's a white gay private party or a discotheque that is doing this because the sanctuary was not a white gay space. It was very mixed as well. Um, then let me, then, you know, show me, you know, this is the best I've been able to do. And so being the outsider was enabled me to kind of, um, I had other people say, look, and be bipartisan by that, by, by that means. So you had no preconceived notions. No, you didn't no. go in going, I know better than you. You just said, show me the history. Basically. Yeah. Let's see it. Yeah. So, so, you know, and then, of course, you know, then I got involved with all these people and I sort of, you know, I, I didn't, I was no longer completely the outsider. I developed friends, what you might call friendships. I also had to be careful to retain a sense of autonomy in my writing. I didn't want, I didn't want to do any PR writing. Um, so, and I never did. I, I felt that I, you know, I, what I wrote what I was, was what I wanted to write. I didn't want to put in stuff that was, people felt was very private I didn't want to put in stuff that was inaccurate, but otherwise I wanted that history to tell it as, as best as I could work. So, and the, no, the, the other thing to say is like, this is the work of history. Historians do not have to experience the history they write about. If they did, we would never have any bloody history books. You know, historians go and they make the use of surviving evidence, whether it's through people who are still alive or it's archival or it's uh, archaeological, or whatever it might be, and you bring together the information and try and make the best of it. And we need to know about our history because that's where we come from. And it informs us today, and it also provides us with our context. Because we now know about what happened in the 1970s, we hold on to a vision of what can what is still has to be possible today because it's happened once. doesn't mean it... Clearly, we can't wind the clock back. We can't... We can't uh, go back in time as such. But if things have happened once, it means that they can happen again. We can have parties that you know are organized in a certain way. If we want to have a party with balloons on the ceiling, we can do that. Okay. Uh, if we want to have a party that runs itself according to an invite list, uh, even if it's a democratic invite list. So, you know, it's just about... I mean, I obviously, one thing I do believe is that New York was a very democratic city in the 1970s and early 1980s. It was cheap. It was multi-ethnic. It was cross-class. It was heaving with a sense of community. Uh, property prices were cheap, um, and there was an awful lot of good music was recorded and came out of New York City during this period. Oh, big time! Uh, it was an extraordinary period, and um, and it's inspired. Uh, it's in, it's in, you know. I went there. This is the other thing I, I suppose I would say is like I went there kicking and screaming. I wanted to write that house music book. I wasn't interested in the 1970s officially. So, you know, I came from being an extreme skeptic to being a convert, if you like. And of course, the one thing I haven't said is all this um, extraordinary music was introduced to me uh, that was recorded during the 1970s that I now, of course, love. Um, I, it's not that I, I also love electronic music still. And I'm getting more and more into soul music from the 60s, whatever. I mean, it's like the, the world of music is rich and diverse. 
I'm getting much more into African and Latin music these last five years, maybe. Right. But I still love house music. Sure. Um, but you know, it's uh, it's the world is, oh. is world is wide, and and rich, and let's embrace it. And um, yeah, let's, let's embrace this too because we want people to keep following you. Make sure you get his other books, Life in Death, on the New York dance floor, a Tim Lawrence publication book, another one he wrote, and of course, Arthur Russell. Those that don't know, I want to go bang. And all those great records. It's Is a, it all over my face? It's all over my face too. Another great. And record. Arthur would take his music down to the loft and listen to it on David's system because David had the nine, the nicest stereo system. Yeah, right in the town. Yeah, yeah. And we can't thank you enough, Tim. I know it's we're at nine o'clock in the UK, and you must run. I've got to go and see a venue. I've got to go and see a new venue. Looking oh, for right. a new venue. Well, well, good luck so yeah, well, the work, the work. Uh, this wasn't work. This was pleasure. But, uh, we yeah. enjoyed you. We enjoyed your uh, your whole thank you synopsis, thank you. and we actually got some snapshots into your world of what it was like dealing through the one book. You were able to explain a lot, you know. Yeah, it's good. It's great. I've never, I don't, no, almost never do interviews like this about like how did you know, like the the how did the how did it all happen, you know, this book. So like the it's detail. It's been, re- it's been really fun re- revisiting that whole process because it was What's very. It? As I say, I felt very lucky. I felt like amazed that this hadn't been done by someone else. No, um, no. But, but, but grateful to just meet meet these people, hear their stories, and then shape them in a way and give them a context and a a narrative that hopefully gave them some some you know. Gave them some some profile that they pre- didn't quite have previously, and a sense of a sense of meaning. I mean, that's what it all comes down to. That meaning that I got on that dance floor after my parents died, and I felt like, yes, here this is a world which is a world that gives me a sense of sustenance. Um, and that's I think this is what we all what we all that's at the core of it. Surely, this kind of experience that the, that the dance floor can give us. Well, the, if, it's not, if it's not that, then if it's not that, then it's just it's something else. It's, it's methodical. It's 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 methodical. It's it's like a drug in a good way. It heals. Mm. Music heals in many yeah. different ways, and that's community. why community as well. community, and that's why garage worked, and that's why later on Sound Factory worked, and that's why Twilo Ministry. That's why people come together, not just to pick up each other. But also the music does something. It's infectious. That's why we're all in this. The music does it every time. Again, we can't thank you enough and God bless you and good luck to everything. Thank you for uh, thank you for being so generous and for all your time and for showing some interest. And uh, it's been really, really fun. I've enjoyed it a great deal. So uh, good luck with the rest. Good luck with all your future interviews. It's you too. Fantastic what you're doing. If you ever write the house music book, you know you ask me to be that book. I'm, I'm still being asked. One day, one day. The next book is going to be something else, it turns out. But uh, maybe the one after that. Okay. So before I let you go, thank you. Before I let you go, let me just say this, because next week we have Godfather of House, UK House, Jazzy M oh, coming right. on. He's going to tell his story, and his story goes back, way back into time. He is also another architect to this whole dance music thing, and we are so excited to have him as well. We can't thank you enough, Mr. Tim Lawrence, the philosopher, <laughs> the go-to, our man. For dance music, we check you 
You doing it each and every time. Good luck on your. I have to. I have to shout out to you though. When I've, you know, the number of your great records I've danced to, it's been, it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's so good to, to be able to spend some time with you as well. So. Oh yeah. Thank you for. Thank you not only for the interview, but the amazing music over such a long period of time. Thank you, and thank you for being a a, a huge supporter to what I do. You know, without all, I always say, without all of you, there is no me. And on that note. That's Again, the same for all of that's the same. We all are interconnected. That's right. Without all not- you at home watching all of us, there would be no true house stories and no reason for Mr. Tim Lawrence to tell that story. So on that note, I want to wish everyone a good night and ta-ta for now. See you all next week.